Hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Air, the AI Revolution podcast. So today we'll be exploring the future of LLMs and what it will take for us to get there quickly. And for example, we have been using ChatGPT quite a bit on many for many tasks, generating emails, creating research reports, using it to search the web. But a key issue that's been nagging everyone is the problem of hallucinations and the problem of reproducing what you saw let's say two weeks uh, ago right and this is something that's going to cause a lot of issues when we want to use llms for more reliable work and as we imagine using gpt for more serious work right so today we'll have uh, a, a guest joining us to learn and to explore this topic Absolutely. Thanks, Jade. Uh, we have a fantastic guest on the program today, uh, Dr. Vijotham Krishnamurthy, who is a staff research scientist at uh, Google Brain and was previously at Google DeepMind. He's had a stellar background with an undergrad at IIT Bombay in computer science, after which he got a master's and a PhD at the University of Washington in Seattle with a specialization into artificial intelligence and optimization of such systems. Um, he's also done a postdoc at Caltech and is incredibly cited uh, as a scholar in the space. Um, he currently works at Google Brain on this specific issue of how do you make AI systems safe and reliable with results that are consistent and reproducible with the end goal of ensuring that AI is a force for good for humanity in taking over a lot of our tasks. Very excited to have him. Can't wait for all of you to watch it. Uh, it's a very, very exciting episode for all of us. Right. So in particular, you know, what we learned is in fact something very interesting. It seems LLMs actually behave like people in, in the kind of strategies that work to make them more reliable. For example, did you know that something called reverse prompting, which is essentially the LLM models prompting the human to learn more about what they want, actually makes them better. So this is in line with how we actually teach students to ask more questions uh, to, to become better themselves, right? And did you also know that actually using something called a step-by-step approach, which, is, uh, which has many technical names now in the LLM literature, so it turns out the step-by-step -step approach of answering questions not just leads to reliable answers, but also allows the LLMs to improve themselves and be more uh, repeatable and reproducible, right? Awesome. So, but Achet, are you saying that LLMs are like students in your classroom or are getting eerily similar to them in, in some interesting ways? Well, yeah. So I'm biased towards thinking of them like that because that's my usual role. But that turns out it's not just my bias, but there's a lot of research that's coming up that shows that something called a chain of thought prompting, it's a way of prompting the LLMs itself, leads to much better results than asking them a straight question, right? Yes. And it seems we can generalize it even more. And our, research, our guest uh, is actually an expert in developing such systems. Sounds awesome. Can't wait to get into it. I also loved what you said on uh, the reverse prompting because there's been such a big, I guess, hullabaloo about prompt engineering and how we have to get better as humans in how we prompt machines. But this idea that you know machines can actually reverse that whole idea and prompt us and change the way our brains are wired and how we think, right. that sounds really, really much more like a partnership because I felt like with prompt engineering, it always seemed like there was an asymmetry between the person asking the question and, and the machine answering. But right. the more we get to this workflow where there's this kind of very symbiotic collaboration of prompting going in both directions, that seems truly like a like teamwork uh, in, in the best form. Absolutely. And I think this is taking us towards the actual human AI collaborations, I think, which is going to be crucial in increasing usage of AI in real systems. So we cannot just let them do whatever they want, right? So the AI systems, we want to be in control. We want to be able to um, align our values with, uh, or align their values with ours. 
And this is a way in which uh, we can actually imbibe the AI system with our values. Fantastic. Let's get in. Cool. Yeah, let's do that. Hello, everyone. So today we have DJ, Divijottam Krishnamurti, join us from Google DeepMind now. And in the past, he's been part of the Google Brain team. Uh, and even before that, um, he's been a researcher in the broader area of optimization, machine learning, and uh, related topics. So today we'll be exploring multiple topics with him. Uh, so DJ, do you want to add something more on uh, what you work on? Um, sure. So uh, currently I'm part of a team at uh, Google DeepMind focused on privacy and security, but more generally, like my interests span all aspects of AI safety uh, very broadly construed. Perfect. So today we'll be talking about some of your experiences in this new era of AI and in particular go deeper into some of the reliability issues of AI, right? So that's a topic that keeps coming up in multiple dimensions. One is to figure out, hey, how do we use AI in in different industries, right? Uh, what are the issues with AI? The second part is, let's say, if you do decide to use AI, how do we align it to what we need? How do we control it, right? So that's the other part. And in general, also looking at in the same context, safety of uh, AI systems, right? Understanding when it can go wrong. So there are, uh, you know, in, um, in in known terms, you know, we, we, we talk about known risks, but what are the unknown risks as well, right? So we will talk about some of these aspects. So let's begin with your journey, DJ. Sure. So, um, yeah, so when I uh, moved uh, to the U.S. for my PhD, um, I was working with uh, a professor who actually developed this um, uh, toolbox called Mujoko, which is actually a very popular tool right now in the field of deep reinforcement learning. Um, it's basically a tool that allows you to simulate um, rigid body dynamics, um, uh, essentially allows you to simulate like Newton's laws and stuff when you have let's say like a simulated robot interacting with an environment which could have like lots of different kinds of objects. Um, and uh, right. you know, so you can essentially have all the physical dynamics of those kinds of uh, systems modeled. And then you ask questions around like, suppose you specify a goal for this robot, what's the best way for the, for the robot to accomplish that goal, right? Um, so you can essentially right. have uh, what are called like optimal control problems or in AI language, they call reinforcement learning problems um, that essentially require you to like figure out a complex sequence of actions to accomplish a particular task. Um, and uh, so that's right. kind of was, was my main focus during my PhD. Uh, one of my first projects in my PhD was actually on what's called inverse reinforcement learning or inverse optimal control, where um, the hypothesis is that, you know, humans have evolved to do lots of movements very efficiently. Um, and if we collect data from humans doing these kinds of movements, like walking or like various hand manipulations, can we learn from that data and like figure out what's the optimal strategy of like accomplishing some of these things that humans end up doing quite efficiently, right? Interesting. Um, right. And so, uh, so that's kind of learning through observing um, an optimal agent. Uh, and then through the rest of my PhD, I worked on like many other problems within that space of like essentially how do you uh, develop algorithms that can deal with uh, <clears throat> these kinds of, um, you know, high dimensional like control and optimization problems and how do you solve those efficiently? In particular, I, I did a lot of work around like um, risk aversion in these kinds of problems because many times uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the environment. There are like various things that might um, get get disturbed compared to what you expected. Um, and um, so you need to figure out a way of responding to these random disturbances. And uh, maybe you care not just about like what would happen on average, but you might care about what would happen in the worst case or in some kind of percentile um, quantification of the worst case. Right. And so how do you deal with these kinds of tail events that could have catastrophic consequences um, while solving Got the problem? Understanding them and figuring out ways to adapt to them, right? So yeah. that's the... Got it. Got it. 
So DJ, just teeing off a little bit on that. So you spoke <laughs> about learning from humans. Uh, I thought yeah. that was really, really fascinating. Uh, so if yeah. you take, I mean, if I understood what you said, so for something like, let's say walking that humans yeah. do, we walk fairly efficiently. And when we say efficiently, we mean from the standpoint of amount of energy consumed for, let's say, unit of distance walk. Energy consumed, say, while also meeting like a, a kind of a stability uh, criterion, right? So that essentially like the way humans right. walk, it's not very easy for us to fall over. Uh, right. So uh, despite different complicated terrain, so you still want to like ensure that you can walk in a stable and, uh, you know, reliable manner. But yes, doing so with minimal energy is kind of important. Yeah. And what's fascinating on that, right, is that the, the when we learn how to walk, that process is far from efficient, either right. on the parameter of amount of energy spent or on the stability of the walk itself. It's uh, seeing a toddler learn to walk is one of the most, I think, uh, simultaneously funny, but also like slightly nerve wracking process to go through as a parent because they're falling all the time. Uh, and they also seem to be like crying and all this energy expended there. So how do you kind of distinguish between the process of learning the gait versus like the efficiency and the stability that comes once the skill is learned? And then in the when you think about using that as an inspiration for AI, because AI has to do both, right? It has to do the learning and then finally the inference once the model is trained. How do you kind of see differences between those two, those two phases? Right. So um, what I was talking about was learning from a human that's already able to like do the task really well, right? Mm. So okay. the idea was that like if we have, um, let's say, I don't know, we want to get, um, say, in, you know, uh, companies like Amazon have this use case where they have these large warehouses and they need to sort through like lots of different kinds of objects, which is currently done by humans, but they're trying to like automate some of that using robots. And so their robots need right. to be able to like, given a large box of like items of various different sizes, they need to sort through and like pick out like items of certain sizes so that like they can all be uh, packaged together when they send it out to be shipped, right? So you need basically for the robot to be able to like recognize objects of different dimensions, figure out how to like pick them up and place them somewhere specifically, right? So this is the kind of thing where if you record a lot of data of humans doing it really well and like, you know, presumably like the, the workers in Amazon uh, warehouses are like very well trained to do this kind of thing very efficiently, uh, you could you could take that data and like learn how to do, uh, do the same using um, a robot right 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 mm. great so that, that's a perspective of uh, generating data set for the ai to follow as well right um, and coming so, to yeah sorry so just just to um go back to uh, sid's original question around um the um you know how this kind of learning process for the ai differs from how a toddler might learn um in this particular context where we're learning from like expert demonstrations, um, it's unlikely to be similar because you're kind of already like showing the robot like the right way to do it. And you're just kind of uh, getting it to do that. But there's many situations where we actually, it's it's much harder to get like human demonstrations of, of the right way to do something. Um, so for example, like, I don't know, people have thought about using robots for like, you know, disaster sites, right? Like things like Fukushima and stuff that happen and you want a robot to go in there and like do something to, to, to handle the situation. Um, it's, it's much harder in those kinds of situations for a human to demonstrate exactly the right way to do something. And so you need the robot to kind of figure out the right strategy. And so if you think about a robot learning to do something from scratch without like a lot of supervision from a human or a lot of examples or demonstrations of the right way to do it, um, I think that that process is maybe more similar to like how a toddler might learn because it's very likely the robot makes lots of errors in the beginning. And, uh, uh, and uh, in fact, it's a big research area of like how to allow the robot to learn in a way that allows it to make mistakes and, and get better, but at the same time still be safe and, you know, not let the robot break or like break something else in the environment. Right, right. So control the environment in which it's learning these things, especially right. in a new environment like disaster situation and so on. Yeah. Right. So this brings us back to, I think, the availability of data to train AIs, right? So what you talked about earlier was, hey, let's record humans do certain things. 
can use those recordings to train the AI, right? And in LLMs, the development of large language models could be seen as an example of that because we already have humans that have generated a lot of text data, right? And almost at the uh, optimal level, right? So if you think about what comes out on a web page, uh, it's after a lot of drafts that a human goes through. And of course, there are some ad hoc conversations as well, but books, uh, papers, all these are highly processed um, output of humans. Now we are learning, using that to learn uh, or teach AIs on how to generate similar outputs, right? So do you see similarities between these and um, and do you see there's an issue with how that particular data was generated and how that might impact how the AI might actually learn? Uh, do you see any of those issues? So are, are you talking about just the quality of data that the AI is trained on and how that might affect? Right, quality and not just that. So how a particular article was created. So we are skipping the process of creating that, let's say final piece of article, right? So we are just directly giving the end product to the AI. Right. And now we are asking it to generate the quality at that level. So is that a, a drawback for the current AI systems? And is that why we see lack of understanding and so on? What's yeah, your perspective on that? Interesting point. And in fact, like just a couple of days ago, OpenAI released a, a paper where they were trying to get like GPT to solve uh, mathematical tasks. Um, and one right. of the things that they observe is that if you give a lot of training data to GPT on uh, solving mathematical tasks where you break the solution down step by step, and you have a lot of supervision on like all the intermediate steps that you need to go through to get at the final answer. They show that training GPT mm -hmm. on such a data set is actually makes it significantly better at solving these kinds of mathematical problems and much less prone to making errors because you could imagine that like in theory, you know, you can just have like say a complex math problem expressed in, in say English language. And then uh, you just have a data set where you have the problem and the final answer, right? Okay. And you're trying to like train GPT on like just mapping the, the problem definition to the final answer. Uh, but what they showed is that like, rather than having such a data set, if you have a more fine-grained data set where you break down the process of arriving at the answer into like several steps and you, ha and you train the GPT on like that kind of um, broken down uh, solution process, it ends up, ends up doing a lot better. Um, and right. uh, they're kind of, I guess, I mean, it's it's maybe a bit of an open question of whether this is actually true, but what they were trying to claim is that if we want to achieve alignment between these kinds of AI systems and what humans want, then um, it's much better to adopt this kind of approach where we, where we present the AI with a kind of step-by-step -step broken down reasoning process as compared mm -hmm. to just like question answer type data. I mean, it's fascinating you say that because I think the, the kind of implicit assumption there then is going back to what you said earlier, right? There's these two kind of modes in a, in a, in a world where you know that there are humans that exist that solve this particular problem well. You can use a more kind of broken down into steps approach of like learning the, the kind of in, intermediary steps to solve the problem as opposed to just learning the final outcome and then in cases where let's say the human does not do the job well you do not want to train on the step breakdown because then it's possible that the steps themselves are in the right way to eventually solve the problem so the idea that uh, the path dependence if you will between starting with the problem and ending with the solution uh, if you know that the, the path gets you to the solution that's one world if you feel like that might not be the case what you're saying is you want to kind of two-prong the approach and based on uh, the outcome itself in those two scenarios. Yeah, so I think it's a significantly harder challenge to have AIs kind of discover like um, their own kind of reasoning path uh, and, and at the same time have the AI be reliable, right? So right. you might get it to do it occasionally. And I think it's these AIs are certainly capable of like, coming up with new strategies of solving problems that are different from what they've been trained on. But uh -huh. 
but I think in those situations, it's much more difficult to assume that the AI gets it right. So it might get it right some of the time, and it'll kind of need constant supervision or feedback to ensure that you know whatever creative process it's coming up with is indeed like actually um, correct, uh, at least for like questions which have an objectively correct answer. Right, and that's another key point that you're making, right? This is generative AI being used in an application where there is such a thing as a right answer, as right. opposed to, for example, something like generating poetry or creative writing sure. or an image where there is subjectivity. That's yeah. the, the class of problems here entirely deals with problems where there is such a thing as an objective answer. And that's where these are. Right. Things. But I think a lot of times when people discuss like reliability of LLMs, they typically mean uh, in domains where like there is uh, there is a clear reasoning path from uh, from hypothesis to answer. Um, and it need not necessarily be um, a, a situation where there is no subjectivity. There, there could be subjectivity, but even in situations where there's subjectivity, if you say, I don't know, like, um, let's say that um, an LLM says that, like, you know, a democratic form of government is better than a dictatorial form, right? If it's able to like give you like a reason, like a broken down reasoning, and each step kind of makes sense to an average human, that's a different situation as compared to like you know the AI kind of like just kind of hallucinating a bunch of like intermediate things and then kind of making the statement in a misleading uh, way, right? So I think right. even right. in situations where there's subjectivity, there is something to be said for having a systematic reasoning process for the LLM. Got it. So that's a very interesting perspective. So we are, in some sense, constraining the AI to think in a certain way because we want to be able to understand what it's doing, right? Uh, they're very different from, let's say, for example, how AlphaGo was uh, created or, or, or how, for example, we started with games that go games between humans and then we let the system learn from those games. But then when we allowed the AI to play with itself and actually just reach the conclusion of winning the game, then it came up with very different strategies, right? So that's very different from how we're trying to do this here. Yeah. Right. So I would point out two things about that's different about uh, games. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing is that there is a clear, well-defined, unquestionable objective, which is mm -hmm. to maximize your score in the game or maximize your chances of winning the game. Right, um, and so the in some sense the evaluation criterion for the AI is kind of unquestionable there that, you know, even in even if you use like self play and you play like two versions of the AI against each other, it's clear that e each one of the AI has a clear objective of like trying to like maximize its its chances of winning, um, and uh, essentially the way AlphaGo works is by kind of you know a cartoon version is kind of that it's simulating all possible moves. And then kind of like trying to reason about which moves it takes right now, which kind of lead to like the maximum number of paths that will lead to like it ending up in a winning state, right? So Got that's kind it. of a version. And so, uh, so that's kind of uh, a situation where it was feasible to like just let the AI play against itself and discover completely different strategies. I see. Um, but the second point I would make there is that, in fact, people have shown that even these like state-of-the-art Go-playing AIs, um, they can be defeated very easily by certain adversarial strategies that you can choose, and you can induce them into making a very silly or a very like un unjustified move that no human mm -hmm. would have made. And so despite the fact that the AI is discovering these very powerful strategies, it's very easy to put the AI into situations where like it does something that no like human with common sense would do, right? Um, got it, got it. So, um, Could you tell so, us more about that? That sounds fascinating. How, how, is, how does that happen, DJ? Like why, that sounds bizarre, right? It's not something you would ever expect because if it's sifting through probabilities and sifting through maximizing scores, why does it, why is it susceptible to these kinds of human mistakes? Right. So. In an ideal world, like if you had like infinite computation, you could technically build this perfect AI that could simulate like all possible consequences of all possible moves, and uh, and then kind of it would always like discover the perfect like strategy. But the reason Go was challenging was that the number of such moves, if you want to like simulate like all possible 
scenarios, it's kind of like it's a completely like astronomical like kind of number of possibilities. And so you that's where the machine learning comes in is that you you use neural networks to approximate like what might happen in many different scenarios which you haven't explicitly experienced while playing. But you try to say that, okay, this scenario is similar to this other one. And so like it's very likely that if I was going to win in this with this one move, this other move also might be similar. But then when you do those kinds of like learning approximations, there are situations where like those learning approximations get things completely wrong, right? Um, so, so for example, like I can give you another example, which is actually related to things I've worked on very actively that you can build um, um, neural networks that do computer vision that say, for example, like can take this this uh, image of the three of us and kind of tell you know where each of our eyes are or where each of our mouth is and stuff and like there are models that will do this extremely well but mm -hmm. even for the best of the best of these models it's it's very very feasible and easy to come up with you know a very targeted change to the image for example like we take the screen that we're on now and we change a few pixels somewhere very strategically and that's going to cause the AI to make a completely incorrect prediction, right? So most of these AIs are kind of very good on like the average case and most of the situations you might face. But if you like adversarially probe them towards like things which, uh, which are different from what they have been trained on, uh, it's mm -hmm. often possible to come up with like a scenario where they make a catastrophic mistake. Got it, got it. Very interesting. So this bring this brings us to the question of I think when you mentioned in in these games the objective is very clear, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that means the the system that you are building so it it's easy to get alignment. So you know exactly what you're doing. But in other systems the alignment is harder. So is that where the systems differ? So the you know coming back to the problem of alignment games it's a well-defined state uh in real world it's not at all right um yeah yeah it, so uh, yeah. i agree with that uh i agree that like in many of the real world use cases where kind of the it's it's much harder to define the right way to do something um mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a much bigger challenge but but the existence of these adversarial policies and strategies even for the game playing scenarios shows that even even when the objective is very well defined uh, mm -hmm. because we are using some kind of learning from experience and we haven't seen all possible scenarios it is possible to come up with situations where the ai does something um, nonsense nonsensical interesting so completely surprise the ai and then bring it away from a set of paths it has uh, been trained on right so that's the strategy there got it got it and so you're saying, so when you have such a system, then if you train the AI on generating reasoning in each of these steps, it might be a better way because there are multiple steps in which the AI can correct itself. Is that the reason why, um, let's say, you know, in LLM, the chain of thought prompting, right? So that's an approach that has been working very well. Um, is that the core uh, reasoning behind that? Yes. So um, I can make kind of, another um, analogy here um, where like I don't know if you you guys have heard of diffusion models and like yep. the text image mm -hmm. synthesis, synthesis and uh, you know stable diffusion all that so uh, for um, there's a long history behind diffusion models uh, so there were like uh, some uh, something called generative adversarial networks or GANs before that and before that there were other things called variational autoencoders VAEs so Again, this is a very cartoon picture, but like the big difference between VAEs or GANs versus diffusion models is that um, VAEs and GANs were trying to, um, you know, synthesize kind of what looks like high quality images to us um, in like mm -hmm. a one shot fashion, right? So a VA or GAN, you feed it what's called like a latent vector. It's going to directly come up with like an image, say, of a person's face or whatever kind of uh, domain of images you're trying to model. Um, the big difference between that and, and diffusion models is that diffusion models kind of do this in a step-by-step -step fashion, 
they kind of start with like pure Gaussian noise and they keep like doing small corrections to that until you end up with something that looks like a high quality image. So even in that scenario, like this kind of step-by-step -step kind of correction ended up being a much more successful uh, strategy as compared to like learning end-to-end -end how to like go from pure noise to like um, a, a reasonable image. Right? Got it. Interesting. Um, so, uh, so that's kind of like a, a bit of a detour, but like, I just want to make that analogy. And so essentially what's happening here is that we're training these neural networks to essentially approximate some kind of ideal process that we have in mind, right? Right. Now, if the ideal process involves like a very long uh, chain of reasoning and, uh, you know, a lot of steps to go from like the initial information you have to the final answer that you want, it's mm -hmm. going to require a much more like complex neural network with like many more parameters trained for much longer to be able to make that very long range chain of reasoning steps. As right. opposed to that, if you break it down into like simple things, then, you know, it becomes much more efficient for the neural network to like do each step because the complexity of each step is, is, is rather shallow. What you're almost describing is even if you're a master chef, kind of, if I just show you a final end product and say, replicate this piece of sushi, which is taken like hours and hours to build versus if I show you the recipe, which is a step-by-step -step process to get there, you're seeing even with fairly well-trained AI, you found that step-by-step -step instructions when available perform far better than just being shown an outcome and being asked to ideate on the steps to get there, if I understand that. Right, and it's better in a, in a, in a particular sense, which is that um, if... I think you know our AI systems are powerful enough to be able to do it without the step-by-step -step instructions right now. But the danger with with those kinds of situations is that if you ask it something very unfamiliar to what it had seen in its training data, then uh, its ability to generalize correctly to this new scenario becomes a lot worse because it's not being forced to like think in the step-by-step -step fashion. As opposed to that, if you have like the step-by-step -step supervision, then it can course correct more easily, even in an unfamiliar scenario, even if it gets like one of the steps wrong. Got it. This sounds exactly like how humans learn. That's what to me is like, sounds so interesting. Like this is pretty much how humans approach problems. We try to break it down and we try to see similarities in the individual steps to patterns we've seen before. When I go to a new city, for example, and I'm trying to like navigate what's happening, I try and go for what is familiar. Okay, I'm going to go to the information kiosk. I'm going to try to get a map. I'm going to try and see uh, where people are going, whatever heuristic that I have, and then figure out what, what my plan for the day is in terms of my, my itinerary, rather than just kind of give it nothing and say, I'm going to a new country, a new city with no plan whatsoever, and let me just go wing it. Sounds right. very bizarre. Yeah. yeah. So just uh, to add on to that, uh, so it looks like there are two different things that we're discussing here. One is reliability, right? So uh, reliability, robustness uh, with respect to adversarial behavior and so on. And the second part that you mentioned, uh, DJ, is generalizability. So the other benefit that we get by step-by-step -step reasoning is now uh, the AI can generalize to completely new situations, right? Is that a good way to characterize the uh, the two benefits? Sorry, I think you cut out for a bit there. Can, can you repeat the question? Yeah. Um, so there are two benefits that I'm seeing from this step-by-step -step approach. One is reliability or robustness to adversarial perturbations and so on. The second is the generalizability of the systems. So the ability for the AI to adapt to new inputs, right? So these are the two benefits that I'm seeing. If we also train the AI on a step-by-step -step data, is that is that a good way to think about it? Um, I would say that it's more the latter than the former uh, because um, adversarial inputs could be like really adversarial, and I, I think that we're very far from like building systems at the scale of GPT, which would be like completely free of adversarial examples, uh, like. Yeah because those are like really like probing some kind of, you know, corner of the whole space of knowledge of the, of, of the AI. 
and it's very difficult to like i think we are very far from being able to secure ai systems against like truly adversarial inputs but i would say maybe it's not a huge uh, problem in 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 the real world because the chances that somebody happens to like discover that like truly adversarial kind of input for the llm in the course of just using it in the context of an application is 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 somewhat low right um, so uh, i think that i think the the latter problem of like generalizing to an unfamiliar but non adversarial scenario uh, is actually much more a practical issue and i think uh, for that the step by step reasoning is um, is uh, definitely like i mean i don't know if it's a, a complete solution but it's definitely uh, seems to help a lot got it got it and in the context of llms the the first problem the adversarial uh, you know inputs right i think in the context of llms they are specifically called prompt injection so where you give some kind of um, you know clever prompt to the llm to get it, it its internal details or to make it behave in a certain different way and there's a lot of prompt injection attacks that are being done as well and the other part that you're talking about is let's say if i want to create a new article completely new article on a new subject so the llm should be able to generalize to the new situation and then um, give a reasonable output right got it got it cool um so coming to some of the specific things that you have been working on in the area of uh, developing verifiable systems and so on so can you tell me a bit more about your um your thought process and how the field is developing on how should we be thinking about human ai relations right um so what are the uh, core frameworks uh, that are available sure so um yeah i think in general you know especially if we think about using ai in like safety critical use cases like healthcare and stuff um i think it's we're still far from the situation where like we can kind of just trust the ai to do the right thing all the time even if we have a lot of high quality data and stuff if they're making decisions that might affect a person's life we still have to be extremely careful about like how the outputs of the ai system are being used and right. one um one possible way to deal with this is to say that we're unlikely to use the ai autonomously or at least use it autonomously all the time but rather we're going to mm-hmm. have the ai be some kind of assistant to a human expert right and so um we allow the ai to be providing information or or in, inputs to um a human uh, but then allow the human to make the final decision um so uh in terms of things i've worked on in this space um we we did some work showing that uh you know ai systems that were trained for tasks like detecting whether someone had breast cancer from a mammogram or whether someone had uh, tuberculosis from a chest x-ray um these kinds of ai systems typically are are trained on not a huge amount of data and so there's like many situations where their predictions are not very reliable and so what we showed was that by um looking at the confidence of the prediction of the ai system um we can build a system that uh you know uh reasons about whether the prediction of the ai is actually reliable and if not differs back to a clinical expert and by doing so the most surprising result that we were able to to show is that you can by using this team of a human and an ai you can achieve a level of right. accuracy that's higher than either the human or the ai by themselves so in some sense mm-hmm. the the sum uh, i mean it's greater than the sum of the parts right so essentially right. you have this kind of complementary capabilities between the ai and the human and by putting them together you can do better than using either one by themselves right so is it so just to uh, deep down there so you have two systems one is purely the input being given to human and then getting the output and input being given to ai and then getting the output now you are thinking it will be given always to the human plus ai system or you give it to the ai system and then based on some kind of a, a thresholding you then show it to the human and then get their final output is the human um, plus ai in series or in parallel right so the the 
system that we actually implemented and tested was uh, the the second option that you were saying that like essentially the the AI always first tries to make a decision and then okay. goes back to a human uh, if it's not possible to. But the other option also has been investigated by by other researchers, and I think um, there's a lot of like different flavors of this kind of thing where maybe. Uh, you know, the AI first tries to make a decision and if it's not very confident, it goes to um, like a non-expert human. So in a medical setting, maybe you could think about like radiologists who are like very specifically trained to diagnose breast cancer or things like that. But maybe uh, the availability of such radiologists is limited. And so first you give it to like a non-expert clinician, maybe like, uh, you know, a a general physician. uh, And then, uh, you know, if if they're not confident in themselves, then they can kind of pass it on to an expert human. So you can even have this kind of multi-tiered system where the AI reasons about like how difficult is this case and like what level of expertise is is required to actually uh, correctly diagnose this. You're almost describing a call that I have with Comcast, PJ. Or like any other like call center, I think when you when you describe this, like you first get to the level one agent that tries to do their best, and if they're not able to resolve the issue, it goes to the level two and level three and escalations. Right. Because I, I guess the idea here is the AI is probably the cheapest option to solve the problem, and then you have varying degrees of humans with varying capabilities that you would then escalate to if you have the need to do so. I know Bundy, I think you've done some research on this topic, if I vaguely recall. Yeah, yeah. So on, on detecting fake news, right? So you don't need to send it to the right expert all the time. So you can break it down depending on the difficulty of the question um, into, you know, sending it to a non-expert or sending it to a purely AI system and then uh, do that. Uh, but that's very encouraging, right? So saying that human plus AI is better than, of course, it will be better than human, but better than AI itself. Uh, that's an encouraging situation, you know, in the current scenario that we have where we are thinking, hey, uh, AI is going to take all the jobs, right? Uh, so hopefully we are far away from that and then we still need human in- input. Yeah, yeah. so f- definitely for like, you know, things like uh, programming and stuff, I think, um, right. you know, AI systems, like as the complexity of the task gets higher and higher, it's more it's it's it becomes less likely that the ai system is able to synthesize like the whole solution end to end by itself so in right. fact a lot of programmers i know who actually use like ai based uh, programming to uh, assistant tools um, they use it in the form of like they essentially break down the problem for the ai into pieces that it can manage and sometimes it's it's a you know it requires some experience of working with the ai systems where like maybe you don't ask it to synthesize like a very complex algorithm for some complex task directly you give it right. a piece and then if that piece itself it gets wrong you break it up even further so you you know you need a lot of active intervention from the human but once you get used to um interacting with such an ai system uh, a lot of like developers including like through a study that was internally done at google reported like significantly higher productivity levels using an AI Got assistant it. as Got compared it. to working by themselves. So the co-pilot mode is a mode that we can bet on and then um, be safe about, right? So not a completely autonomous mode where the AI is writing code and then, you know, building it and then testing it itself, but a co-pilot mode. Is that the right way to think about it, DJ? Yes. Um, uh, and uh, in fact, like uh, another piece of work that we did in the space, um, again, uh, not for programming, but like for, for this task of like, uh, you know, again, making predictions from from images. So for example, like, yeah, again, like if you're trying to diagnose things like, um, um, you know, breast cancer or or, um, tuberculosis, you can break down that process as well into like identifying certain like clinical concepts that are present. So for example, if the person has TB, maybe like there is congestion in their lungs that shows up in a particular part of the x-ray or like um, there's like other characteristics that that are visually apparent, uh, and so right. rather than trying to have the AI make like the final prediction that goes from the image to the final uh, output, you can ask it to predict like these intermediate concepts. Um, so right. there's actually like, some very nice work that came out of Stanford a couple of years ago where they developed these concept bottleneck models, where like rather than going to the final answer, you first go to these intermediate concepts, which are understandable to a human. And then you go from the concept to the final level. And so what we showed was that 
you can actually build on such models to enable human AI interaction, where the, the AI first tries to make the overall prediction by itself. But if it's not very mm -hmm. confident, it doesn't ask a human for the final answer, but rather for like what they think about one of the intermediate concepts. So you can ask whether like, you know, the radiologist thought that the person had congestion in the chest area based on the x-ray, right? And then given I that see. piece of feedback, it can kind of refine its own predictions and get a better answer. So this enables this kind that's of... Right, that's a very interesting mode. So the, uh, the another benefit of the step-by-step -step, uh, teaching of AI is that the, um, the role of co-pilot becomes easier as well. So you're not just asking. So human is actually the co-pilot for the AI system. So not the other way around. So that's very it, interesting. It goes both. It both. It goes both ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, so the concept of prompt engineering, right? It's very interesting in this context. It's like one is you're engineering the right prompts to give the AI, and the AI is then prompting the human back to then think about the problem in a different way. So it's kind of like collaborative prompting almost between the AI and the human to kind of get to the right answer. Right. This should right. have massive implications for even think, I mean, pretty much everything, but I can immediately think of healthcare when I call an advice nurse on the phone, for instance, today, and that's so painful to have such long wait times to wait for a human. If you could do a lot of the pre-processing with a very simple AI that takes a bunch of indicators and then is able to immediately triage and route calls to the right place, I can imagine it can like be very, very beneficial to humans uh, almost immediately. Yeah, I agree. But I think yeah. that to actually build such systems that we can safely rely on, I think we need to be very careful about how they're trained. And I think all, a lot of these ideas that we're thinking about of like breaking tasks down step by step and giving more fine grained supervision to the AI, I think are going to be important to build like systems like that, that we can actually trust. Very interesting. So thinking in terms of uh, comic books, right? So to to uh, to make it actually interesting. So the Ultron mode of creating an AI is very different from the let's say the Iron Man mode, right? So where Iron Man say it's the suit with a lot of uh, inbuilt autonomy, but then uh, you have you have Tony Stark actually uh, you know deciding what to do. So that's a safer and uh, a better way, you know, in terms of longer longer term of view than building let's say the ultron um, is that the way to ultron is purely autonomous and then of course you know uh, we have alignment issues with ultron and then ultron decides to destroy everything is that a right way to think about these two approaches yeah i think so and i think that you know the 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 arrow going both ways is i think kind of important Right. So we need mm. we need to think about, like, of course, AI systems helping humans, but humans also learning how to work better with AIs. Right. So I think, Got like, uh, you know, if you imagine, like, if you make the analogy to programming, right, so maybe like 50 years ago, if we were all doing computer science, we would have been like writing assembly code and like thinking about how to move like register data in one register to another and stuff. And now, like, there yeah. are compilers who do all that for us. Right. So we have learned right. how to like write programs at a much higher level and trust that the compiler will like take care of the lower level details. I think this is just going Got to be it. a further level of abstraction that like we'll, we'll learn to like use these AIs as kind of a very high level kind of almost semantic compiler that can take care of certain subtasks very well, but then we know right. their limitations and we need to like intervene in certain places to make sure the overall output is right. So in this world, DJ, I guess maybe thinking forward, right? You're almost, I think, this this kind of new algorithm for how humans and AI work together. It seems to, from this kind of picture, that since the AI is only coming to the human when the AI is stuck, that then it almost implies that for humans to have a relevant role to play, they all have to be specialists in certain specific fields where the AI feels that it's unable to have the expertise to solve the problem. Is there a role for the generalist? the Renaissance person from like the, the mid 15th century. Are we saying at some level that if the AI only comes to the human when it's stuck on a very specific problem, do we still have space for the generalist human that has a generalist skill set across different domains and categories? Is that still a re relevant you know, skill set for young folks joining us on this podcast? Or would you say that the main thing is for them to specialize into a field where they are like part of a few of experts in that particular domain? And that's the most useful way to be relevant. I feel you could argue things both ways because I feel like, you know, if there are fairly narrow specialized domains where like 
we eventually imagined that we'd have a lot of very high quality data. I could actually see the AI systems being much better at like actually nailing those kinds of things down um, as opposed to like, you know, working in a very open-ended area, which generalists tend to do, where like maybe you're synthesizing information from many different fields, putting it together in novel ways that you might not have thought thought of before. I think it's going to be much harder for an AI to master this kind of very general kind of open-ended uh, domains. Um, but for right. sure, maybe, um, you know, in specialized domains, I, I think that it's going to be increasingly the case that the specialist will be making... Uh, fewer and higher level decisions uh, and a lot of the more like um, routine decisions for which we have a lot of high quality data to train the AI will likely be, you know, offloaded. Got it. Got it. But, but I, 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 I mean, I, I, I'm not, not an economist, so it's very difficult for me to anticipate. But I, if I still make an analogy to what's happened with like programming over the last 50 years, right? I think it's not, you You might have imagined that like at some point somebody who was specializing in assembly programming would not be able to have a job once we had sophisticated compilers that don't require you to program an assembly. But it just, I think what happened is that you just moved up the stack, right? It's not, in fact, like by making it easier to program and ma making it more accessible, like the use cases and applications of programming became so much more widespread. And in fact, that created so many more programming jobs than they were before, right? Got so it, I think it. that in fact, like if we draw from that analogy, we could make an argument that like this kind of democratization, if you will, or like making it like easier to like interact with uh, programming languages through AI systems is in fact like going to usher like so many more different use cases of programming that may not be happening right now because there's not enough people who have the relevant skill set. Um, mm -hmm. And you could even argue that it might create more opportunities or more jobs. But like, I think, you know, this still remains to be seen because it, it's going to be a right. confluence in many factors. That's interesting. So this brings to our uh, section where we ask you for predictions on different things. So. What's your prediction on, you know, prompt engineering, right? So just to give the context, when ChatGPT came up, prompt engineering became a huge thing. Hey, uh, there are classes, you know, on YouTube, um, scores of videos on how to do prompt engineering. And then it went through a lull of, hey, a GPT-4 is so good that maybe you don't need prompt engineering, right? Um, or BARD is so good and you don't need prompt engineering. Um, where do you think this is going? So. Uh, is prompt engineering going to be relevant? Is is that something that people should spend time on? What's your take on it? I I think that uh, you know I would treat it as let's say if if you were a programmer and you were learning like a scripting language like JavaScript or something, right? Like you don't anticipate that like knowing JavaScript is going to like get you through like every kind of technical computer science challenge that you're facing but it's a useful skill to have, right. right? So I think that it's going to be one of those things where like, it's certainly going to be a useful skill. The exact details on how it's done, what what is the right way to do prompt engineering, what's the right way to like refine your prompts given like how you see your prompts are doing. Um, all of those details, I suspect, are going to change rapidly and with every iteration of these AI systems, it's going to change a lot. So I wouldn't suggest that anyone kind of like expects that they're going to learn the current flavor of prompt engineering and expect that they're gonna be able to like be useful just based on that skill set mm -hmm. but i think that this overall paradigm of like how to interact with an ai to get the best out of it as a generalizable skill feels like mm -hmm. a very powerful thing to, to acquire got it got it so, so learning to prompt ChatGPT is not going to be uh, scaled up because ChatGPT itself is changing. The underlying models behind ChatGPT are itself changing. So that's yeah, your, like models are changing. Uh, the underlying like capabilities of those models are changing. The way they're being used is changing. Um, so I would yeah right. I would make it more analogous to like a scripting language, which maybe becomes popular for a certain period of time because uh, you know there was a lot of interest in in that space at that point. But I wouldn't 
count on like that being a reliable skill like to rely on going right. forward but i think this but the over like the kind of one level abstracted skill set of like um how do how to interact with an ai efficiently to get the best mm-hmm. out of it for your own use case is is going to be a big deal and and that's going to have to be an adapting process and to talk about that is it about learning what ai systems would do and keeping track of the new models that are being generated or uh, is it better to start training oneself on hey how do i break down a particular task into multiple subtasks so which of these so as a new undergrad uh, who's who's going to spend 6 months on learning something what should they train themselves on interesting question i um let me think if i have a good answer to this um for sure i would say that like spending a lot of time kind of really like you know going through like all the current you know viral courses around like how to do prompt engineering specifically for like chat gpt or something i feel may not be the best use of of your time especially like if you're a student early on in your career i think it's much more useful to to build like foundational skills that are going to serve you regardless of what the future holds um so mm-hmm. especially if you're in a technical domain like computer science i would say say that still like kind of like learning f- foundational concepts in computer science is certainly more valuable than like learning the current you know uh, favorite flavor of prompt engineering which i think is going to be completely useless in 6 months um got but, it, got uh, it. but i think that at the same time i think you know may maybe it's useful to get used to the idea that you constantly need to reskill and the tools that are going to be available to you are going to be changing and improving at such a rapid pace that you need to develop this ability to like adapt to fast changing tools right so so i would mm-hmm. say that like recognizing that uh, that that notion and training yourself to be adaptable in the face of like very fast changing capabilities um is certainly going to be great so in other words thinking yeah. thinking about it from when i was an undergrad learning algorithms and the fundamentals behind algorithms like techniques like dynamic programming that's better than learning perl right which i ended up learning a lot during my undergrad and then never got to use perl um so is that uh, the analogy and yes. but just to push on that further right i think just to kind of like combine what dj has been saying i think if, for example if you were a scientist 200 years ago for instance when you had no calculator your ability to do science i guess at some level was predicated on can you like use logarithmic tables and come up with conclusions and calculations and mechanisms that are fairly effective and then when later when you had the advent of the calculator for instance i think a lot of fears were humans are going to forget how to do arithmetic because now you have a device that does arithmetic and but it's it's interesting right we've not stopped learning basic math after the calculator was invented in fact i would say the folks that have best leveraged the calculator are the ones that know the basic concepts of arithmetic and then still choose to use a calculator to save time as opposed to not understanding the fundamentals of what underlies the calculator itself i think it's similar with generative ai in the sense that the worst thing we can do is to tell our children hey you don't have to learn how to write because a tool can just be prompted and it'll write everything you need to do because if you don't understand the fundamentals of what good writing is good writing is analogous to good thinking and i think that's the biggest thing that if i'm hearing dj as well is that we have to learn the fundamentals we have to learn our old foundation models if you will right. in terms of how we interact with the world and then we use these tools as mechanisms to accelerate time not as a kind of means to get over a fundamental lack of understanding about the how, how the world works that's what i took away from what you said dj please correct me if i'm putting words in your mouth uh no i think that's perfectly fair but uh maybe i should also caveat that by saying that i think this is my advice to like people in a, in a technical field right the people studying computer science for example i think the good thing about like this wave is that it's also opening up um possibilities for like a lot of people who don't have the technical training or technical skills to be able to make use of of these generative ai systems so 
you know, a lot of people are thinking about like, you know, how writers or artists uh, are going to be able to like, you know, play with these systems to like be more creative in, in their own space. And I think for them, thinking about like it as a tool that's capable of a lot of things and evolving over time is is probably a more useful way of thinking about it. Like just like maybe a lot of, you know, people who do like creative campaigns and stuff maybe use things like Photoshop a lot now. Um, which compared to what they were doing manually before Photoshop existed, um, I think you should... Yes. Yeah, so so for such people, I think they should think of generative AI as just the next kind of iteration of Photoshop, right? In fact, like, Photoshop has already integrated a lot of generative AI capabilities in their latest uh, release. Got it, got it. Yeah. So just on the prediction side, so you mentioned about the personal level, right? So how should should people try to uh, skill themselves? What do you... Think about enterprises, companies that are uh, that are seeing this AI revolution come up, and then hey, imagining hey, should I focus on um, you know building on foundational models developed by let's say Google, or should I create my no my own internal uh, AI model? What's your perspective on that, and how should companies think about that? I think it, it really depends on the resourcing um, available uh, to the companies. So I think, you know, the these, at least like things of the scale of BARD and GPT are like incredibly expensive to train and maintain. So even if someone has the technical know-how of how to do it, and in fact, like a lot of these things are actually quite out in the open. So there's a lot of like open source versions of these models coming up as well. Um, so I think that, you know, this process of like training these, I think training like the really like best performing state-of-the-art models is I think likely to still be out of reach of like an average enterprise. Um, But the question is whether they actually need those models, right? Um, I think that, you know, there is a lot of potential um, and value for generative AI, but I also worry a little bit about like people jumping to it too quickly, where like a lot of more classical like machine learning solutions might actually be a better fit for their use case. Um, so right. I, I think that, you know, for example, like I, I mean, I could imagine that, you know, if you're building a chatbot for some like a customer service agent for some kind of enterprise that has a fairly kind of narrow set of things that customers might ask the chatbot for, it might right. be much better for them to, you know, use their own in-house thing that is specialized to that. And maybe it doesn't even have to be like a full-scale generative AI model. Like there's a lot of variants now where you can say that like you have some kind of ML model, but then it like ultimately like just retrieves things from a database and like surfaces those um, to customers. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of like hybrid variants of these foundational models where like maybe the the biggest and most powerful versions of them will still maybe uh, uh, be the niche of places like OpenAI or Google, but uh, there'll be lots of flavors of these models at different scales, mm-hmm. uh, which and in fact might be a more appropriate solution for a particular enterprise than like relying on the so digging deeper into that, so I see two types of companies. Right? One is, let's say, you know, as you mentioned, customer service companies where they're dealing with a lot of uh, customers or a lot of humans, right? Uh, at fairly low-level tasks. So that's one type of company. The other type of companies, let's say, highly research-focused uh, companies, let's say, pharma research companies or, uh, let's say, finance, hardcore, high-frequency trading companies. Uh, so I see both of them getting excited about that. So is that how it should be, uh, the high research companies are using it to accelerate the output of their own researchers, right? And these other companies like customer service companies are trying to automate a lot of interaction. So there are two different use cases. Uh, where do you see the future going uh, in terms of, comp- you know, let's say models like OpenAI are building for these? Uh, do you have any particular position on these? Um, I think I would probably say that the 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 kind of more customer facing use case for like you know you know very simple like routine tasks I think I would more like I mean I would say that it's more likely that these foundational models will be able to like solve those kinds of 
problems off the shelf or maybe with a small amount of like uh, fine tuning for the more specialized kind of use cases i would say there is probably a much bigger incentive for those enterprises to develop their in-house models because i think more those more specialized use cases require a lot of high quality data that's from that specific domain and expecting that like a general purpose pre-trained model is able to like you know do the right thing for those very specialized domains is, seems unlikely to me so i think um, um yeah, I think the more specialized the use case, the bigger the need to have a uh, a more um, in-house kind of uh, bespoke model. Got it, got it, got it. Cool. Uh, so one final question. So, you know, how do you see, let's say, five years from now? What what do you see you working on, or the top researchers in the field working on, and what what side of what type of tools might we have access to five to well, ten years from now? I mean, I, I can say what what dreams I have. So I kind of have this kind of ultimate dream of like, you know, having what, what I call like specification driven AI, where um, maybe one version of it that's far from perfect, but like maybe a step in the direction is, is this idea of constitutional AI that um, this company called Anthropic mm-hmm. came up with, where you specify like this big constitution that says how should the AI behave? And then you get towards right. uh, get towards an AI that's kind of consistent with that set of rules or policies or regulations. So I think having the ability to like specify constraints or rules in kind of say natural language or like whatever form of expression is natural to humans, and then having the AI systems like interpret those and kind of behave accordingly is going to be a very powerful capability. Uh, but I think that we still need to build up towards AI systems that actually can do that. Um, so that's something right. that I'm really excited to work towards. So more organized prompt in engineering in some sense, right? So the, uh, the constraints would be some kind of a prompt that you give to these models. Yeah, so I mean, in the current flavor of the models, yes, it, it could be a prompt, but maybe in future iterations, it's more like, I mean, it could take many different forms, right? So right now, if you think about like, how you specify a schema for a database in XML or something like that's kind of a very formal specification of like what what it means for for this thing uh, to behave. And so you could imagine that, you know, in complex domains, there's like lots of these kinds of rules and we have systems that are capable of like ingesting all of them and then producing behavior or output that's consistent with all these rules, right? So I think that that's kind of a very powerful capability to have. Um, And then I think, the other version of that is also like, what's the efficient feedback mechanism, right? So I think there's many cases where like the AI will still get things wrong, but can we build AI systems that know how to ask for like the exact right amount of feedback with minimal intervention so that like given that feedback, they are able to like course correct and kind of do the right thing, right? So- Got it, got it, right. That's amazing. Great. So yeah, that brings to our uh, end of the discussion. Of but of course, you know, I think this is just we're at a very early stage of all these things happening. So we would love to have a part two with you, DJ. Let's say one year from now to check on your verifications firstly, and <laughs> check on your you know predictions and to see where it's all going. Um, Sounds yeah. great. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you, DJ. Thank you.